0: Psalm 145, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, the Lord is faithful in all his words, and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling, and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So for our reading in God's words tonight, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the opportunity to be fed and to be shaped by your word. We thank you for this, our nourishment. We thank you for this, our roadmap to fellowship with you and to glory hereafter. Help us to submit to the things you teach us, but also to delight in them. Please build us up in faith and in obedience. Please get glory in the reading and preaching of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Those who do not know the Lord might find it strange that it would be so energizing and so delightful to talk about how awesome somebody else is. But if it's true that we are in fact created in the first place to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then it would make sense that when we are giving glory to the right person, when we are saying that he must increase and we must decrease, that that would genuinely delight us who were made to be worshipers. We have here a song of praise tonight, a song extolling the Lord. The title, which is part of the inspired text of scripture, says it is a song of praise of David. That in itself is somewhat interesting because although many psalms tell us to praise the Lord, this is the only psalm that is called a praise of the Lord. It's the last one in the 150 psalms that is attributed to David. Um, That doesn't always have to mean that David was the author, although that seems to be the default assumption of Jesus and his apostles. And therefore, we ought to understand, unless there's some reason not to, that David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, David, the king, David, the musician, gave us this reflection on the praiseworthiness of God. Now, before we dive into Psalm 145, there's something important you should know that doesn't come across in the English translation, and that is that in Hebrew, this is an acrostic poem. That's where you start each line with a successive letter of the alphabet. Uh, we don't normally use acrostic styles uh, in English, you know, unless it's a birthday card or it's uh, something that a little kid is doing in school. You know, A is for awesome, B is for brilliant, C is for cool. Um, but in other languages, this can be a very useful way to express things. Uh, honestly, it makes more sense really than uh, rhyming, which is how we do poetry. Um, acrostic is something you find repeatedly in the Bible to give expression to the fullness of a concept. Uh, and so you find sometimes uh, entire sections of Scripture that come in 22 pieces because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, 23, if you want to count sin and Shin separately, they're just mirror images of each other, but normally they're counted together. So, for example, Psalm 119. That vast acrostic trying to teach you about the wonders of God's word has 22 parts, right? Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit. The book of Lamentations, uh, chapter after chapter has 22 verses because they're all acrostics as well. Except for the middle chapter, Lamentations 3 has 66 verses. It's a triple acrostic. Well, our psalm is an acrostic as well. And there are a few things that will... Uh, That will help us to understand as we interpret Psalm 145. The first thing it helps us with is knowing what to do with that unnumbered verse in italics that you've probably got in the middle of your text, uh, verse 13 and a half, I guess we would number it. Uh, There are the standard Hebrew manuscripts, I should say, uh, from which most Old Testament uh, translations are done. Uh, dates to the Middle Ages, and generally it's extremely accurate because uh, Jews and the scribes of the Jews were very meticulous copying down Old Testament scriptures. And yet this main source of the Old Testament for modern-day translations lacks that verse. Uh, However, here's a couple of reasons we know it belongs there. Uh, One is that other sources have it. Uh, right? Ancient translations that go back even further to the ancient church uh, have it. Uh, We've also now discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, going all the way back to the lifetime of Jesus, that this verse belonged in the Hebrew text. Uh, And also, if you count up your verses, there's only 21. And so that should tell you something. There's a letter missing out of the 22 of the alphabet. Indeed, it's the Hebrew equivalent of our letter N. And so, yes, that verse belongs there. It apparently was erroneously dropped by some copyist and has been rightly preserved in other places besides that one book. So that's one benefit. An acrostic tells you that you do need to include verse 13 and a half as a matter of detail. Something else, though, more broadly, knowing that Psalm 145 is an acrostic helps to limit our expectation of how tightly reasoned it's going to be, right? Taking yourself from one thought to another to another, as you think about the theme of God's greatness, his praiseworthiness, uh, means that the primary motivation is going to be the next letter in the alphabet, rather than necessarily following a train of thought. Now, there will be some ideas that we can kind of group together and pursue, but What I'm saying is that, in general, you need to expect a psalm like 145 to have sort of fuzzy edges. It's not like it has cut-and-dried, self-contained stanzas, as, for instance, the song we were studying this morning. Uh, The words overlap, the ideas go back and forth. So we're going to have to be somewhat general in the way we look for themes in this psalm, because it's not set up thematically, it's set up alphabetically. And one more thing that... Understanding that it's an acrostic will help us with is that structure will help us see the point of the psalm itself. See, this is where an acrostic is more helpful than something like rhyming because an acrostic makes a statement about thoroughness, right? Uh, it's saying, I have a subject in mind and I want to explore that subject from A to Z, And not only will this be a thorough explanation, but in fact what I'm implying is that this subject is so vast that I have to sort of impose an artificial limit on it. It's a limitless subject that needs to be limited. You're saying, in effect, by doing an acrostic like this, I could go on for days. I could say any number of things, countless things, about the praiseworthiness of God. I could pick any letter in the alphabet and have something to say about how worthy God is of praise, as one commentator expressed it. Because you can't use every word in the language, you can use an acrostic to prove that you could use any word in the language. In other words, the acrostic style helps us to see the point of Psalm 145, that God deserves such thorough praise from us because he is so thoroughly praiseworthy. Or in the words of verse 3, he is great and greatly to be praised. Well, as we pursue kind of those general ideas or themes through psalm 145 let's phrase them then as the reasons the explanations as to why this great god is so greatly to be praised Uh, i think we can note five of them first god is greatly to be praised because of his name that's the first three verses and also the last verse Second, God is greatly to be praised because of his works. That comes up especially in verses 4, 5, and 6. Third, God is greatly to be praised because of his grace. Verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. Fourth, God is greatly to be praised because of his dominion. Verses 11 through 13. And fifth, God is greatly to be praised because of his provision. Verses 13 and a half through 20. So God is greatly to be praised because of his great name, his great works, his great grace, his great dominion, and his great provision. In the first place, then, God is greatly to be praised because of his name. Verses 1, 2, and 3, first of all, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Name comes up again in verse 2, and name comes up again in verse 21. And keep in mind, of course, that biblically a name is not just a verbal label. A name is someone's reputation, character, and what you can know about them. Especially when it comes to the Lord, his name is his self-revelation. It is what you can know about God, and that's why you can call his name great, his name holy. You can trust his name, you can praise his name, because his name is what you can know about him. So when we say that his name is great, we don't just mean he's really famous or spoken well of, it means that God in his own character, in his own being, is worthy of praise before we get to anything he says or anything he does. It's our tendency to focus on, of course, what the Lord does for us, or what the Lord amazes us with in history. But if God had never said, let there be light, he would still be worthy of the unending and inexhaustible praises of anything that he ever called into being. He is greatly to be praised simply because he is great, Great is the Lord, verse 3, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. There is no exhausting it. There is no getting to the bottom of it. You could meditate on the greatness of God. How wonderful, how vast, how powerful, how great he is without ever coming to the end of it. And this greatness, this character, this name is called holy in verse 21. All flesh should bless this holy name forever and ever. These verses are showing us that the extent of God's praiseworthiness uh, has to do with who he actually is, rather than just what we have known of him or think about him. His praise ought to be gauged to his greatness, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. You see the logic there. It's not, well, I know something about the Lord and therefore to that extent and for that reason I'll praise him. No, because of who he is, because of his own unsearchableness, because of his own worth, he is to be praised or extolled or blessed. These words are very similar in meaning. And as we'll see, that praise is to overflow from the psalmist himself even to future generations in verse 4. I think the main application here as we look at the language of these verses is that in view of the greatness of God's name, the praiseworthiness of his name, we are to praise him particularly in song. This is a song of praise, as our title says. Uh, I will praise your name forever and ever. Some of these verbs imply singing in and of themselves, uh, but also we'll see that especially when we come down to verse 7, singing aloud of your righteousness. It's also worth noting that our thorough worship that seeks to uh, match up to God's thorough praiseworthiness is to be daily. Every day I will bless you. And by the way, these are all implied imperatives. This isn't just hey, this happens to be what I do. Uh, These are either express or implied commandments. I need to, I must. It is incumbent upon me, and so it will be incumbent on the worshipers of the future verses too. I must bless and praise you every day and forever and ever. Uh, The worship of God is not then to cease when we walk out the door of this building. The worship of God is not to cease when we turn off our radio. Uh, We are to live for God's glory and continue to speak and sing of God's glory throughout the week. I hope that you have a practice of private worship, that is sometimes called devotions or quiet time. That you, if you live with others, have a practice of family worship or family devotions. I hope that those things are not just practical discussions, but I hope they are genuine offerings of praise to a praiseworthy God and that, yes, you might heed the psalmist's invitation to sing. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised because of his great name, his holy name, his self-revelation, which, of course, we know even more fully than David did, because God has revealed himself perfectly in Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, Because of his name, because of who he is, as we sang a little while ago, because of what thou art, we take comfort and we also sing praise. Secondly, God is to be praised because of his works. That's the idea that keeps getting mentioned in verses 4, 5, and 6. One generation shall commend your works to another, declare your mighty acts, Uh, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and your wondrous works, I will meditate. They will speak of the might of your awesome deeds. Now, you can pick out other things here, but that's kind of the dominant idea that's coming up in these verses, that God has acted in a way that inspires awe. He's acted with power or might, and these are wondrous deeds. That means that you can look at biblical history, you can look at church history, your own history, and you can find... um, Works of God that inspire wonder. Uh, Wondrous works includes, of course, miraculous works, you know, wondrous works like the ten plagues and deliverance out of Egypt, wondrous works that attended the, the ministries of men like Elijah and Elisha, showing them to be genuine servants of God, wondrous works that were part of Jesus' ministry, showing that he was truly sent by the Father. Uh, These are works that inspire wonder. The idea is that instead of the usual kind of cause and effect, measurable humdrum existence that we anticipate, God surprises us by not acting according to the normal secondary means. He is free to do that, uh, to work above them and against them, and without them, as our confession says, he is free, of course, to surprise us, to do things that have undeniably the signature of God on them, so that you stop and say, whoa, wait a minute. There's no explanation for what Moses or Elijah or Jesus just did, except, as Nicodemus said, that God be with him. These are wonderful or wondrous works. Now, if you're a reflective student of scripture, you'll understand, of course, that even works that don't inspire wonder normally are actually still works that God has ordained, that God has upheld and he invented cause and effect and he sustains the universe by his power and, and works that we don't find wonderful are not somehow then disconnected from God. The point is simply that God sometimes dramatically and undeniably intervenes in a way that gets the attention of his people, gives them something to talk about one generation to another We, of course, are familiar in Jesus Christ with the greatest works of all, which are not simply the miracles that he performed, not simply the way that he entered the world, conceived of the Holy Ghost and born of a virgin, but the great wonder-working is the atonement for sin, validated by the resurrection from the dead, that has changed the course of the world. We have a lot to, to praise, but also to tell the next generation about. Uh, We ought to be declaring and speaking, and uh, you could also translate this studying or meditating on these wondrous works. They are to be remembered. They are to be passed down. God's great works demand our study. Those Those are the actions being described here, talking, meditating, recounting. The idea is you're going to transmit them to someone else, particularly you're going to transmit them to your covenant children. And even if you're not currently raising covenant children, you are part of a covenant community here where we are bound and committed to helping one another raise children. It's not that we have to all take a turn, you know, paddling them when they misbehave, but rather that we are all part of their encouragement and their teaching. We are part of their godly uh, discipline and instruction. We heard some of that even this morning we then all have a role in one generation commending your works your saving works mighty works especially gospel of jesus works to the next generation i know we love our kids i think hopefully our kids will have fond memories of us and of being here at sandy springs but i hope that some of what we'll, they will remember and what will stick is that we were willing to speak to them not just about the weather or about what they're studying in school, but about the mighty works of God in Jesus Christ. So God is greatly to be praised because of his name, then because of his works, then because of his grace. Again, there's overlap. These are kind of fuzzy edges. But you start to get more of that emphasis when you come to verse 7. They shall, or again, it's sort of an implied, uh, an implied imperative. They need to pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and sing aloud of your righteousness. Well, your abundant goodness can also be rendered your your kindness or your generosity. Uh, your righteousness doesn't have to be an intimidating vision of the uh, the bar of justice. God's righteousness is simply His his right character that's eager to see everything else put right. And so there's much to pour forth the fame of and sing about as we think not only how good God is, how righteous he is, but how those things have motivated his mighty works. Then in verse 8, you get uh, almost a creedal statement of Old Testament religion. This is uh, another statement of Exodus 34, verse 6. Uh, remember, that's where, in light of the, um, the covenant disaster at Mount Sinai with the golden calf, God is renewing covenant with his people due to the pleadings of Moses the mediator, and Moses asks to behold God's glory, and God takes him aside, and God comes down in the cloud and speaks to him and declares his name, his character. Here's how you know me, Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is what God says you need first and foremost to know about me. This is my name. And that's what we're being reminded of here. The Lord is gracious. Yes, he is kind beyond our deserving. He is merciful, he is patient and compassionate to those who do not deserve patience or compassion. He is slow to anger, though he will judge sin. He gives his people opportunities to repent, to appeal to his mercy, and to be reconciled. And he is abounding in steadfast love. That covenant affection that we talked about a couple of weeks ago in another psalm, that hesed, that is so typical of God in the Old Testament. Then verse 9 takes that quintessential Old Testament confession of how gracious and merciful God is and implies that it's not just for Old Testament Israelites. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Verse 10, all your works, now this doesn't mean your deeds like we had back up a few verses ago, all your works is the same expression as all he has made. Uh, So, his mercy is over all his creatures, then verse 10, all your creatures will give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. Uh, The word for saints here actually is an echo of that characteristic of God, that steadfast love, that hesed. These are the Hasidim. These are the steadfast love reciprocating ones. That's where the name for Hasidic Jews comes from, right? The ones who are uh, steadfast loving, covenant committed, faithful to God. Here we're being told that, in other words, that God who was so gracious and so full of steadfast love will be acknowledged, yes, in one sense, by all his creatures, but in particular, he will be acknowledged and blessed by those who know him and even resemble him. His chesedim. Well, what's the the application? What's the requirement here, uh, at least implied in the language of these verses? Well, it's to give thanks. All your works shall, or arguably all your works must, give thanks to you, O Lord, and bless you. We are to pour forth God's fame. We are to preserve the memory of what he's done. We are to sing and rejoice, yes, but what really stands out here is to give thanks for the ways that God's grace, mercy, patience, and steadfast love have been shown to us. God is greatly to be praised because of his grace. And our praise includes then giving thanks. Fourth, God is greatly to be praised because of his dominion. Verses 11 through 13. Now we're hearing about power and we're hearing about a kingdom. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, tell of your power, make known to the children of man your mighty deeds, and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. Here we are essentially being encouraged to speak of the fact that God is king. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. Worship the King, and we are to encourage others, the children of men, to acknowledge the same. We are to tell others that God reigns and invite them to bend the knee voluntarily while they may. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar said words very similar to these uh, when he was forced to acknowledge who the real king was. In the middle of all his boasting about building the Babylonian Empire, he was humbled. And in his humbling and then his restoration, we find this, Daniel chapter 4, verse 3. Nebuchadnezzar himself saying of God, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. In other words, not mine, not that of a mere mortal, not that of a mere human city or empire. God is the king who is never dethroned. We know, of course, that this kingship has been entrusted to Jesus Christ, so that as king of kings and lord of lords, at his name, Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We have the privilege of knowing who is king now, of acknowledging it rather than being judged like Nebuchadnezzar, and of testifying to it with the children of men. I think testifying is the main idea we're being called to here. Uh, the verbs are about speech, talking, speaking, making known. And since we're making it known to the children of men, this has to do with that gospel proclamation that we've even heard echoed in the book of Isaiah your God reigns. God is greatly to be praised because of his dominion. And fifth, God is greatly to be praised because of his provision. Uh, Here we're including that that recovered verse. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. And then you get various expressions of how God is kind to his creatures. Verse 14 says that he helps those who are inadequate. The Lord upholds all who are falling, raises up all who are bowed down. Uh, That's a figure of discouragement. Next, he feeds his creatures. He provides food for them according to verses 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you. That is, they look to you in anticipation. Anticipation for what? You give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Similar to how Psalm 104 described lions roaring for their prey, actually talking to God in a sense. And Psalm 104 going on to say, they all look to you to give them their food in due season. So here we're told to see simply in the fact that the web of life is sustained, even in this damaged creation. That is testimony to the kindness, to the goodness of God, the fact that this world you know, hasn't gone so far off the rails, has not destroyed itself, poisoned itself. The fact that creatures eat and creatures live and breathe and, and the fact that the whole thing works in harmony, that we are to see God's hand in this. Jesus talks about God's provision for his creatures as a reason for us to be confident in Matthew chapter 6 about his care for us. Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He goes on to speak about our clothing, goes on to tell us to leave aside our anxieties and leave the worries of tomorrow for tomorrow. Jesus is saying, look at animals eating. Look at species propagating. Look at life flourishing on the planet you're standing on. Can't you see Not only that God is good, but that you, who are of such value to him, can trust him. Verse 17 isn't talking so much about provision. It would probably fit better with one of the other categories we've talked about already, God's kindness. But verse 18 continues this idea of provision. Here we're told in verses 18 and 19 that God answers those who pray. He's near to those who call on him. That is to say, with open ears those who call on him sincerely, and he fulfills the desire of those who fear him, hearing their cry and saving them. Once again, we have Jesus teaching us very similarly to see God in this way and to respond then with trust. Matthew 7 Verses 9 through 11, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And then we see the Lord protecting his own in verse 20. He preserves those who love him we were speaking about in Sunday school this morning. He protects us from the evil of afflictions. Nothing can genuinely harm us, genuinely uh, do what cannot be averted to good. Nothing can pull us away from God or his love. But on the other hand, all the wicked he will destroy. Sooner or later. God will make sure all of his children are safe, and part of that safety, as you find over and over again in David, to the point that some people really get frustrated with David's psalms, over and over you find God protecting his people includes dealing with the wicked. But David had to live that reality in a very visible way, and we should understand spiritually that the same thing is true for us. It is the destruction of our spiritual adversary, at least the casting of the dragon and his helpers into the lake of fire, that will be our great rescue from them, as Revelation 19 describes it. Jesus, too, encouraged us to look to God for protection. Even as he described the persecution his followers would face, he talked about being delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends in Luke 21. Some of you they will even put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. You say, wait a minute, Jesus, you just told me they might put me to death. Not a hair of my head will perish? Yes, there is no evil in your afflictions. There is no actual loss that God will not redeem and compensate you for and turn to good. Even death itself is for a Christian believer, but your entrance into glory as we sing. And so, yes, God protects his own, not a hair of your head, Jesus says, will perish. Now, maybe you're looking through these verses about provision, and you're saying, where are the verbs that describe for us what we are supposed to be doing? I mean, elsewhere we heard about singing and testifying and calling on and, and uh, you know, giving thanks and, and speaking of your power. But here it kind of goes a long time without telling us what God's worshipers are doing with his worship worthiness. Uh, let me suggest that the first and most obvious answer to the greatness of God's provision uh, is simply our need. Uh, It is acknowledging our need and acknowledging that he provides. Uh, You can see us, I think, described here in those who look to the Lord, as those who call upon the Lord, as those who fear, those who love the Lord. To summarize all of this attitude, those who depend upon the Lord, those who trust the Lord. God is greatly to be praised because of his provision, we're saying. But we're also saying that that praise particularly looks like trusting, needy dependence on this provider, God. You bring him glory when you actually cry out to, look up to him. You can sing about his provision, absolutely. You can speak the praise of the Lord and bless his holy name about provision, yes. But another way you can praise him for his provision, glorify him for his provision, is to keep depending on his provision. So God is greatly to be praised because of his name. He is greatly to be praised because of his works. He is greatly to be praised because of his grace, greatly to be praised because of his dominion, greatly to be praised because of his provision we've seen in all these ways how the greatness of God has been clarified for us by Jesus Christ how we even better than David and those who originally sang the song of praise written by David we have all the more reason to say God is great and therefore to respond with greatness in our praise And this psalm has taught us that great praise looks like what? Great praise looks like singing. It looks like teaching. It looks like thanking. It looks like testifying. And it looks like trusting. So in view of our great God manifested in Jesus Christ, let's be moved to such great praises now. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father thank you for filling our mouths with praises giving us words that are inspired and worth saying that are in some way reflective of some way commensurate with the greatness that we are called upon to worship and marvel at Lord thank you for revealing yourself to us in scripture and in Jesus Christ thank you for teaching us to worship you and also to trust you O oh Lord, help us to respond better to what we have learned about you. In Christ we ask. Amen.